0: all right no stranger to the lake wildwood pulpit uh my dear friend pastor eric freel and eric i'm trying to think back i know when i first met you i don't think you'll remember this but it was at one of your close family members funerals and at snows on cherry street yeah somebody that was a close family member older i don't i don't know if it was who okay and that's the first place I ever met you, and that was at least 12 or 13 years ago. And then God sovereignly had our paths cross again, and uh, we became friends, and now hunting and fishing friends. Um, but more importantly, we are, we are brothers in Christ because of the gospel that neither of us deserve. But both of us are tremendously thankful for. Um, I'll tell you what I appreciate about this brother. Um, it was one of the older fellows in his church I, I met, I ran into at the golf course. You know who I'm talking about, the cheery fellow. <laughs> and here's what he said about Eric Friel. I don't know if I ever told you this, but we were talking about his pastor and, and this man who was, had pastored in his life said this. He said, I have never in all of my life met a more word-saturated preacher. And I don't think there can be a better compliment. And surprising from that particular individual no less. But a fair observation. And that's what I love about this man is that um, his sermons may not contain all of the elements that you think should be in a sermon. But they'll never miss the main element that should always be in a sermon. Amen. And that is the centrality and the exaltation of. Through the exposition of the Word of God. This man, you will always get that when this man opens the Bible to declare it with boldness. So, would you join me in blessing and welcoming to the Lake Wawa Baptist pulpit Reverend Eric Friel.
1: Apologize for my family not being here. They had a previous obligation, and my my wife wrestled with it back and forth, but she needed to be elsewhere to uh, possibly help take care of our two-month-old granddaughter. So she would like to be here. uh, My apologies for that. Ephesians uh, 1, 2, and 3, when the church that I helped found had its constituting service, We had two pastors come, pastors that had been instrumental in the founding of the church, gave us good counsel. One of them I asked to do a 10-minute exhortation to the congregation. What is expected of the congregation in a church constitution, being a church? He selected the book of Ephesians. Thirty-five points later... An hour and 20 minutes. I am not making this up. He finished. (laughs) It was uh, we went beyond the point of anger to the point of how much longer can he go? So with that being said, we've only got uh, three chapters today. We should be able to cover that by nap time. Let's pray as we uh, delve into God's word this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us this very clear revelation. In fact, creating the most precise language that the world has ever seen to communicate it in. We thank you that it reveals you. It tells us of your existence. It tells us of your nature. It tells us of those things that are central to you, and we praise you for that. And Father, we confess that within us because of our fallenness is a constant battle against that. So we pray that your spirit would win this day and that the word would be highly valued and it would have an impact upon our lives and not just be something that we consider for a few moments. We ask the blessing of your spirit here in this place to do all that he is willing to do. And we do so in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to take up a subject this morning, and it's the subject that you see on the screen, the centrality of the church. It is a vitally important subject, and as you look at that, uh, you can see, and uh, I'll ask you a question. What has replaced the centrality of the church in modern time? Everything. Everything. But everything is focused upon one thing, the self. The centrality of the self has replaced the centrality of the church. And it's often that a person will think himself, herself, or their selves above the church of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ does not think that way. Amen. And so we want to take up the centrality of the church. This is a the first third of a what is actually a three-part. A nine-point sermon, so maybe I'll be invited back sometime. We'll delve into the others. So the centrality of the church, we'll consider that just briefly. Then I want to give three arguments, three biblical arguments, to convince every one of us of the centrality of the church in God's eternal purposes. Which means the centrality of the church in God's mind, heart, will. We'll look at three arguments that conclusively prove that. In fact, I believe, and I think you will believe as well, that every single argument proves it. Don't need the conglomerate of the nine. Every single argument proves it. And if you know the scriptures, you know that you could go on and on and on. Twenty arguments, thirty arguments, forty arguments for the centrality of the church of Jesus Christ. So we'll talk a little bit about what I mean by the centrality of the church, and we'll talk about the three arguments. And all the way through, we're going to talk about the one main application, the singular application. There will be many others, but here's the main application. If the church is central in the mind, heart, will, purposes of Almighty God, it must be central in our lives. It must be central in your life now that's pretty bold isn't it if it's not central are you willing to listen to the scriptures and make it central one of the difficulties i think in the united states and perhaps elsewhere but certainly in the united states is a low view of the church outside of the church But I fear that the low view of the church outside of the church is because of us inside the church. We have communicated a raunch and rank idea of the church to the world. And that's got to change. Got to change in our hearts. Got to change in our minds. So when we speak of the church, we're speaking of one of the key Greek words is ekklesia. Beautiful word. It's the word commonly translated church. It's made up of two Greek words. It's made up of a preposition, ek, which means out of, and the verb kaleo, to call. And so the church is the assembly, the bringing together, the congregation of those who have been called out of. Called out of their sin, called out of the world, called out of the domain of darkness, called out of slavery to the evil one, and called into the church of Jesus Christ. Now that church, that ecclesia, sometimes is thought of, accurately so, as the universal church, like the kingdom, as your pastor mentioned this morning. Isn't it a glorious thing that this is not the only assembly of the people of God upon the earth? The psalmist speaks of the rising of the sun to the going down of the same. The name of the Lord will be praised. you know where it will be praised? In the church of Jesus Christ. And it is this very day. We are continuing something that started at the International Date Line some hours ago and is going to go to the International Date Line some hours ahead where the world is standing and gathering and worshiping in the church of Jesus Christ. It is a magnificent thing. The fact that the church has spread ought to just baffle us. It is incredible. It is a testimony to the power of God. But that universal church has its expression in the local church. And the local church is vitally important in the scriptures. It is central to the heart, the mind, the will, the purposes of God. The local church. How can I defend that? Well, the book of the Revelation is written to whom? Seven the seven churches. And it gives the places where those seven churches are. They are local churches. The book of Ephesus is written to whom? To the church at Ephesus. The epistles written to the church. So what I want to hone in on and, and impress upon our minds it's not just the church universal, it's the church local that is central in what God is doing in this earth. Central to his heart. What's that mean with reference to Wildwood Baptist Church? And We've got to get the, we've got to get the implication of this. This church is not a happenstance church. It's not a a feel-good church. It's not something that God is too busy for. You know, I drove by one of the big churches in Macon. They've got a a sheriff out front directing traffic, massive amount of cars. God's concerned about those churches, but not about us here because we're, we're just a few. That's not the case. It's a true church of Jesus Christ. This church is central in God's mind, heart, It's not the only thing that is central. The church is not the only thing central, but it is central. And so let's try to be convinced of that so that we can, if we need to, begin to adjust our thinking, adjust our heart to the reality that the church must be central in each of our lives. The first argument comes from Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to read the text in a moment, but I'm going to word the the argument like this. The centrality of the church is argued by the identity of the one who is given as its head. The centrality of the church is argued conclusively by the identity of the one who is given as its head. Now, who is the head of the church? It is Jesus Christ. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 1. And look at verse 22 and 23. And he, that's God the Father, put all things under his, that is Jesus, his feet, and gave him, Jesus Christ, to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, In the the brief reading of that word, you can't feel the full impact of the majesty of the words. This is a remarkable couple of verses of Scripture, because what the Scripture is saying is this. He whom God has established as the head over the entire, I'm sorry, not the head, as over the entire universe. That's where he goes first. He's established over the entire universe. This one has been given as a gift to the church. And Paul builds and builds and builds to this point where Christ is given to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And as majestic as that language is, it becomes more majestic when you see it in context. So we consider the context. That's the conclusion of Paul's prayer. The prayer begins in verse 15. Watch as this builds, because what Paul is doing is this. He's giving you one step of glory, another step of glory, another step of glory, another step, and he's concluding with this. Jesus Christ, who rules the universe, is given to the church as its head. And he's not given to it anything else. He's not given to the country club, the hunting club, any other club. He's given to the church. So watch this language. Look at verse 15. Paul begins his prayer there. He's heard of their faith and so he does this. Here's the first part of the prayer. He gives thanks. He says to Almighty God, I have heard of the faith of those who are in the domain of Uh, The worship of Diana, remember in Ephesus, the statue that had been lowered down from Zeus, from the heavenly places, and established in this temple. And and it was the focus of the city, and they worshiped Diana. And Paul says, I give thanks to your God that in that stronghold of Diana, the domain of darkness, you have established a church with these people. You have saved them from that kind of destruction. And I thank you for that. So here's one of the applications to us. In each of Paul's letter, in most of Paul's letters, when he begins, he tells them that he prays for them. And when he tells them that he's praying for them, almost always he says this, I give thanks to God. I am constantly giving thanks to God for you. How we ought to practice that in our churches. We're good at grumbling and complaining about one another, aren't we? Or grumbling and complaining about another church of Jesus Christ. But are we good at giving thanks for those? I marvel at times at the book of 1 Corinthians. You know, if, if we saw that church next door, we would be tempted to say, Oh, that's not a church at all. Look what they're doing. Because they had some major problems. And yet Paul writes to them addressing them as a church. Acknowledging their faith, giving thanks for them, and then saying, Okay, but you got some problems here, and we got to work on them. He doesn't throw them out, so we need to pray and give thanks for one another. Are you familiar with C.S. Lewis's uh, screw tape letters? It's a, just a beautiful passage in there where the, the man has been converted and he's praying and he's praying for his mom. And as he's praying for his mom, he's praying for all the things that God would change all of the things in her that bothers him. (laughs) You ever pray like that? (laughs) So as he's praying for his mom, he starts to get irritated. And then he starts, he gets mad, and then he's got to stop praying (laughs) because of these things that his mom does. We know how to pray like that, don't we? How much better to give thanks... But then Paul asks for one thing. He gives thanks, but then he says, I ask one thing of God, that he would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in him. We we could sum this up. Paul prays that you would know God. What direction for our prayers? You know, I don't know the practice here, so I'm not picking on anything. But so often, church prayer times become hospital lists. Dear Aunt Maud stubbed her toe and broke her toenail. And we need to pray for her. And we don't pray that Dear Aunt Maud would grow with the knowledge of God. Right. Go. And it's so vital because Paul says this if, if they will grow with the knowledge of God, if, if God will grant this to you, then you will know three things you will know, first of all, the hope of his calling. God, open their eyes. By the way, when he says here wisdom and revelation, that word revelation is apocalypsis. It is only used of God giving the revelation. In other words, God has to open our minds to understand this. You see why we need to pray for that with one for one another? And if God opens our minds, Paul knows then we will know the hope to which he has called us. Now hope here is not wishful thinking. Right. It is constant fir- constant, firm expectation of future certainties. Yep. They are coming about. Too often we think, Amen. people think uh, the Christian hope is just wishful thinking. Oh, just somehow I wish. That's not it. But see, we won't get that unless Paul answers the prayer. I'm sorry, unless God answers Paul's prayer that he would open our minds to wisdom and revelation. We would know the hope of his calling. Now get this second one. And notice again the climb and the glory of these things. Verse 19, I'm sorry, verse 18, the middle part. And what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance toward us who believe? Did you hear that? He prays to God. That God would give the Ephesian Christians the spirit of wisdom and knowledge so that they would know this. The glory of their inheritance. Do you know, Christian, the inheritance that you have got is, is practically unbelievable. The spirit is the one who opens that up to us. The glory of our inheritance. That is fantastic. Do you know what that inheritance is? I can tell you in one word, God. The Old Testament Testament spoke of um, the inheritance that they would get, their part in the inheritance. Well, the Bible points us to this. The Christian's inheritance is God himself. And so it's building and building to know the hope of the calling, to know the riches of the glory of his inheritance. And here's the third and last thing. Verse 19, the exceeding greatness of his power toward us. Now think about this for a moment. To talk about the power of God seems like it would be enough. This is the power that he spoke and it came into being. Does that ever blow you away? He spoke. He didn't go out to the workshop, bring out some stuff, construct the universe. He spoke. And the universe came into existence. It's amazing to me in, in Genesis when he talks about the creation. He, brings, he creates all these things and it says this. And he also created the stars. Yeah. <laughs> There's more than 350 billion galaxies. And it's such a small thing in God's power That the scriptures just say this. Oh, and he also created the stars. But notice this. The exceeding greatness of his power. Not just the greatness of his power. But Paul wants us to know the exceeding greatness of his power. One of the translators, John Stott, says it would be better to translate that. The energy of his power. And really the Greek word here is energos. One of the, energia. And it means power or energy. So the energy of God's power, what is it like? It's, it's inexhaustible. Yeah, right. I've got a sister right now who's having some, some heart tests done because she's very low in energy. She does something, she just, she's just wore out. They're thinking, well, something's wrong with the heart. God never experiences that. Yeah. <laughs> you ever get tired? You ever come to a point in the day where you say, i got to lay down, i got to sit down. I've gotten to the point now where uh, at times the tiredness is painful. God never experiences it. And Paul says, I pray that you would know that. It's toward you. It's a personal power toward you to live a godly life. And so we say, well, Paul, describe that power to us. And he does so in three stages. He says this. It's the power that raised Jesus from the dead. You know what we say about that sometimes? Oh, I've heard that. This guy has preached that for years. Uh, Yeah, he raised Jesus. Hold it. He raised Jesus from the dead. You know, part of the impact that has on me, it scares me. I've been around dead people. That scares me. Jesus' brain had stopped. His heart had stopped. No more blood flowing through his system. His lungs had stopped. He was dead. And God raised him from the dead. What power. Don't get so accustomed to that that you say, Yeah. No, it's an awesome thing. Paul wants us to know that. He raised him from the dead. Then he did this. He exalted him to his right hand and put him over all principality and power. In the heavenly places. The heavenly places appears five times in the book. Very significant. In the heavenly places, those in Ephesus would have thought of Zeus and his cronies ruling in the heavenly places, the spiritual realm. And what Paul is saying here right now is, no, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And he was given authority in the heavenly places over all spiritual beings, over everything. It's interesting, isn't it? Do you know anybody that worships Zeus? I know that there still is some, but I don't know anybody that worships Zeus. I don't know any of Zeus worship center around here, but I do know those who worship Jesus Christ. Yeah. The gospel goes uh, towards the heart of the Roman Empire, and it's God smashing and smashing yeah. and smashing the domain of darkness. And he does it with just a couple of guys. He does it with very few. He doesn't send a whole army in there. And he smashes strongholds of the domain of darkness. That's his exceeding great power toward us. He rules. And then here's the third thing, third expression of his power. He raised Jesus from the dead. He exalted him from the, to his right hand. And the third expression of his power is this. And it's the highest expression of the power in this verse, in this section. He gave him to the church. Only he could do it. He God the Almighty gave Jesus Christ the ruler of the universe to the church again you know one of the effects that it has upon me makes my knees knock makes my knees knock cuz I've been one of those who at times in my life has grumbled against the church complained against who in the you know the 1970s there's a flurry of books that came out well a few books came out saying The church isn't needed. I can worship God on the beach just as well as I can in the church. No, you can't. You know why? Because God doesn't allow it. It's not God's way. Jesus Christ has been given by the Father as the head of the church. And when we act or rebel against that or don't value it, we are devaluing Almighty God and His gift of Jesus Christ. What is the church? It says here it's His body. It's the fullness of him who fills all in all. I don't know all that that means, but it sure sounds like it means something really important, doesn't it? Jesus Christ, his church, which is his body, is the fullness of him who fills all in all. So let me ask you this morning, what is your view of the church of Jesus Christ? Instead of, uh, I'm going to say this because I've, I've talked to people who have had this view of, on a Sunday morning when the church gathers for worship, this building is not the church, is it? It's the people of God gathered. It's, it's kind of a, yeah, uh, if nothing else is going on, I'm going to go to church. And the attitude should be, they ain't nothing stopping me from going to church. If I'm sick, if I'm breathing out germs, I'm going to secretly slip in, and hopefully the pastor doesn't know. We shouldn't do that. But that's my determination to go. Strengthen the church and worship God in a context where there's nothing that replaces it. It is central. Let's go to the second thing. And these next two will be shorter, though they could certainly be expanded. So go to chapter 2. Chapter 2 and verse 19. We'll read verses 19 through 22. Before I read it, let me remind you the first point is the identity of the one given As the head of the church argues its centrality. This one I I word like this. The identity of the church as the dwelling place of God argues for its centrality. What is the church? It is the dwelling place of God. There's no other dwelling place of God. It is the church. Which means it is central. Look at verse 19. If this is a true church of Jesus Christ, and it is, it is a dwelling place of God and the Spirit. And we've got to explore that a little bit, don't we? It's so significant in this chapter, if you go back up to verses 1 through 3, you have quite a contrast. Look what it says. Drop the, he made alive, and just go with this. And you who were dead in trespasses and sins. Outside of Christ, you're dead in trespasses and sins. Not only that, you once walked in them according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the others. See Paul, where he starts his chapter? You were dead in your trespasses and sins, and let's sum it all up. You were enemies of God. You hated him with as severe hatred as you could possibly have. And you walked according to the prince of the power of the air. His dictates, you did. And you go through the chapter, and at the end, those people who were dead in trespasses and sins are now brought together as the dwelling place of God. How fantastic is that? He talks about them being raised, made alive, raised up with Christ, seated at Christ's right hand. And then he makes this vital uh, teaching here, tells us truth of the Jews and the Gentiles being brought together into one body, the new man. One body. What is that? It's the church. He brings them together in one body. Why is that so significant? Well, the Jews hated the Gentiles. And the Gentiles hated the Jews. It was a deep hatred. And God has redeemed thousands of them and brought them together. You read the book of Acts and you find in many of the churches that are mentioned, you've got a whole mix. You've got Jews and Gentiles from all over the place. And they're there loving each other. And the, and the domain of darkness must be scratching its head, saying, what is going on here? No but look what he does with them. He creates the new man in Christ, and he does this. Notice the Trinitarian nature of this. In verse 19, they are we are members of the household of God. Members of the household of God. Let me tell you something personally about my wife and I. Just anybody cannot be a member of our household. We will not allow it. Just anybody cannot be a member of the household of God. That is endearing terminology. This this is God saying, this is my family. And it's spoken with a holy pride. This is my household. They were once aliens and strangers. You were once alienated and a stranger. And now God says, Wildwood Baptist Church, my family, my household. Secondly, it's built upon the apostles and prophets, but notice this in the next verse. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. The, The main part of the building is that cornerstone, and it is Jesus Christ upon which it is all built. It's the household of God, Built upon Jesus Christ. Now look at the last verse. Let's look at the last part, last part of 22. Eh, we'll read it all. In whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. What is God doing to the church? He's building it together as a dwelling place in the Spirit. In 1 Peter chapter uh, 2, beautiful text. He talks about Christ as a living stone and you as living stones are being built into a holy temple. That's the temple that the Old Testament points us to. It's not a building over across the seas. It's the church of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus Christ is building. It's a a temple built by living stones so God can dwell there. It's, it's, It's so powerful David wanted to build the temple, didn't he? He said, here I am living in this house, but where's the house of God? I've got to build a majestic temple. In fact, he says it will be the most spectacular building on the face of the earth. And God corrects him and says, David, where will you build a temple that I can dwell? in? A house that I can dwell? In? I occupy the heavens, David. I fill the universe. What house would you build? But you know what? It wasn't David's role to build that. It was the role of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ upon the earth says this, I will build my church, and my church would be the dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Gives me chill bumps. I got them right now. You know one reason why? That's scary. Yeah. There's times when we have a low view of the church. Times when we communicate to other people, oh, my church is stinking does such and such. We're speaking against Jesus Christ is the builder of the church. Is that your view of the church? If it is, it needs to be communicated. Last argument, and we'll be maybe even briefer here. Chapter 3. I don't know about you, but but in my limited little understanding of things, those first two arguments, they're powerful, but they're breathtaking. We have been given Jesus Christ as the head. We are the dwelling place of God in the Spirit. But this next one is even greater. It is, again, dearly <laughs> unbelievable. Look at this. Verse 10. The mystery here is the church. You can verify that by studying verses 1 through 7. So um, we look at verse, halfway through verse 9. Let's start at verse 9. And make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery... Which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Y'all, we have a job to do. And the job is this: it's to teach principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Of the almighty power and wisdom of God. Well, here it says, the manifold wisdom of God. Isn't it interesting? When I started teaching, I had a chalkboard. I love a chalkboard. Then we went to a marker board. Then we went to a smart board and PowerPoint. Whatever it is. Chalkboard, marker board, smart board, PowerPoint. You know what the church is? It's all of those upon which God is teaching a lesson to principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Peter picks up on this again in 1 Peter verse 12. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. He talks about the, the Old Testament prophets writing, not understanding what they wrote, knowing that they didn't write for themselves, but they wrote for us. He says that. But they were ministering to us. And then the next statement is this. Things which angels desire to look into. Yeah. You know, when Isaiah wrote Isaiah 53, the greatest revelation of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament is suffering. Isaiah didn't know what he was writing. He didn't know the fullness of it. He was writing for me. How can you not love the scriptures? He's writing to tell me. And the angels, picturesque they're sitting They're on the edge of their seats. saying, what, What? look, look at Lake Wildwood Baptist Church. Look what's going on down there. Whoa, the angels are desiring to look into it when ungodly people now start to live godly lives. And this has got to truly confound them. When when the selfish people of the United States, and the church is selfish, like 2.5% of the church, regularly tithes. We're a bunch of cheapskates. I don't mean to offend you. The church in general. It's got to confound the principalities and powers when people in the church take their wallets out and give sacrificially to the church. you, You could take that money and buy things for yourself and put them in your house with the other things that we buy for ourselves. And we give it to the church. They've got to... I don't know what's going on, but this is powerful. Look how it has changed their lives. But look at this. So the church is designed by God to be the main instrument of revealing his manifold wisdom to principalities and powers in the heavenly realms. Now look at the next verse. According to his eternal purpose. You got the significance of that. Let's go back here before the creation of all things. We'll go back here to the eternal decrees of God. Nothing exists, but God is decreeing, and he decrees that his wisdom will be made known through the church. Husbands, how do you love your wives? Do you love them as Christ loves the church? Wives, a nasty word in our day. Do you submit to your husband's leadership? Children, do you obey your parents in the Lord? That's not the norm in our culture, is it? And it's becoming more and more, when people see that, they say, weirdos. And when the angels see that, they say, Wow, what is this, this is the power of the gospel. God decreed it in eternity past that he would use the church to reveal, look at the rest of verse 11, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. It connects us with the very work of Jesus Christ. Three arguments for the centrality of the church. He who is given is the head, Jesus Christ, given by God. The identity of the church, nothing else is the dwelling place of God by his spirit. And then the church's role by divine design, to reveal God in the heavenly places. Wow. Nothing else. So I ask you again this morning, what is your view of the church of Jesus Christ? Oh, how it ought to grieve us (laughs) that we as the church have communicated to the church and to those outside the church a low, stenchy view of the church. And we ought to be communicating to them a a view of the church that is equal to Christ at the right hand of Almighty God. What a privileged people we are. Let's pray together. Lord, our God, thank you for the glorious church of Jesus Christ. To us here on the earth at times, she does look very ugly. She looks um, uh, troubled, and yet you are doing a marvelous work. And you have given Jesus Christ, the ruler of this universe, as the head of the church. And we bless your holy name for it. We pray for the church as it covers the face of the earth. May it have a high view of itself in light of your view. And may it communicate that view to others. We pray, Lord, that the churches here in Macon and central Georgia, that we would do the same. That we would not bring the name of Christ down because of our view of the church. But because of our view of the church, the name of Christ will be exalted, and sinners will come to salvation. We ask it in the glorious name of our Savior, the Head of the Church. Amen. 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 Thank you,
0: brother. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> Hang on a We got one more song before that. Amen. What a great exposition of the centrality of the church. Amen. Wow well done and i am we just need to respond to that today don't we we need to respond to what and answer that question what's our view and do we value her like we should had that discussion this morning with someone this is why we go this is why we get up early this is why we, we 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 get ready in advance because she is worth it the church is god's plan she's central to all of history she must be central to us amen just stand with me we're going to sing one of my favorite songs and it's probably appropriate how sweet and awful is the place love this song and uh would you would you respond to what you heard in god's word this morning through prayer and praise as we consider the church and her role her value in our lives How sweet and awful is the place with Christ within the door. Imagine that, the likes of us invited to be the Bride of Christ. father god may we love your church may we esteem her may we value her may we understand the deep and distinct privilege to be invited to that feast to be on that guest list and not one of us deserves it lord may we tremble at what we've been called to may we treat her in a way that brings you glory, that you are pleased with. May we serve her. May we sacrifice. May we be trained. May we just love and cherish this bride of yours. For the glory of our King. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Amen. Now, Simon, we will sing together. Here we go. Praise God.